Hi, I'm George Bodarki, host of WFUV's Cityscape. I'm excited to be teaming up with the Brooklyn Public Library to bring you a special series about four communities that made Brooklyn the vibrant, diverse borough it is today. So from WFUV and the Brooklyn Public Library, this is Building Brooklyn. Over the past year and a half, many of us have been indoors a lot of the time. Or if we still work in the community, we hurry from place to place, not wanting to linger too long or explore. But recently, New Yorkers have been getting out more. We're going on walks and having picnics with friends. We're starting to see our neighborhoods again. This past year has also been a reckoning of sorts, a reckoning about systemic inequality and oppression. And we're learning that as the world opens up, we have to understand our history to figure out where we want to go. So here at the library, we want to do that at a local level. That's why we're bringing you an audio miniseries, five episodes about four different neighborhoods in Brooklyn, their history and the story of the people who took part in their creation. From the one-time Mohawk community in North Gowanus. There's something really special about Brooklyn. You know, about leaving your home, the only home that you've really ever known, and going to some place that was also like home. To the women who worked in Brooklyn's Navy Yard during the Second World War. I used to arrive about 6 a.m. in the morning, and uh, I disappeared into the Sand Street Gate, and that was the end of that. To Brooklyn's Chinatown in Sunset Park. The neighborhood at that time were, was still largely a Scandinavian, Irish, Italian, and, uh, and I don't think that those neighbors are particularly happy to see Chinese people moving in. And it's historic Finnish co-ops. You see these buildings? Someday the Finns will all be gone and we won't have any of us left. And finally, to Canarsie. Whatever I was getting every two weeks went into the savings account. And that, that is how stubborn I was about the fact that I was not going to keep on living in a rented place. Yes. This is Building Brooklyn, a miniseries brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library. I'm Adra Ducey. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. Hey everyone, I'm Virginia and I'm the producer and co-writer of Borrowed. I'm usually behind the scenes of the podcast, recording, mixing, and writing. But I'm joining Adwa today to help introduce our miniseries. It is so nice to have you with us, Virginia. So we're going to be taking you to four different neighborhoods in Brooklyn over the next five weeks. You heard clips from those episodes in our opening. But we wanted to start out this first episode with a living land acknowledgement which is a statement that recognizes the indigenous peoples who've been dispossessed from the homelands upon which an institution was built. For us at Brooklyn Public Library, that means acknowledging Lenape Hoking, or the land of the Lenape. So I'm going to read the land acknowledgement that BPL developed in partnership with the Lenape Center. Brooklyn Public Library stands on land that is part of the unceded ancestral homeland of the Lenape Delaware people. As a sign of respect, we recognize and honor the Lenape Delaware Nations, their elders past and present, 
and future generations. We are committed to addressing exclusions and erasures of indigenous peoples and confronting the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism in our work. Thank you, Virginia. And for this podcast episode, we interviewed two leaders of the Lenape Center, an organization run by Lenape elders and committed to continuing Lenape presence through arts, culture, and community. Here's Joe Baker, co-founder and executive director of the Lenape Center. Our ancestors are here. Our families are here. This is the place that gave our culture life. It's the place that sustained us. So even though many people live at great distance from the original homeland, this is a place that, you know, it's, it's a coming home. It's coming back to your roots. It's coming back to your family. Joe Baker is an enrolled member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians, a federally recognized Indian nation located today in Oklahoma and Kansas. But the Lenape people who belong to the Delaware Tribe and four other federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and Ontario, Canada, originally lived in Brooklyn and the surrounding area. The ancestral homeland, the territory, Lenape Hoking or Lenape Haki, is a vast territory, all of New York City, all of New Jersey, Western Long Island, the north part of the state of Delaware. That's Adrian Kumans, the co-founder and co-director of the Lenape Center and an adopted member of the White Turkey Fugate family. So within this region, one sees many place names that are still found today that reference Lenape communities, villages, and really are a testament to how populated this region once was. Those place names Adrian mentioned are everywhere in our borough. Canarsie in southeast Brooklyn and Gowanus in central Brooklyn, those are two neighborhoods that take their names from the Lenape people, and they're two neighborhoods that are part of our Building Brooklyn series. So we wanted to start with the Lenape as the first inhabitants of Brooklyn a borough that 2.5 million people from all over the world now call home. It's important to point out that the story of the Lenape people has been erased from the narrative of this city, in large part because of the genocide and forced migration of the Lenape people, starting in the early 1600s. But the Lenape people are still in this country, some on the same land where their ancestors lived, a territory that includes everything from western Connecticut to eastern Pennsylvania and the Hudson Valley to Delaware, with New York City at its center. Here's Joe Baker again. I, I think what is most important for audiences to understand is that the traditional beliefs of the Lenape people are based on generosity and beauty and relations. And one of the challenges for not just Lenape people, but all Native people, is that the dominant culture has so often wanted to present us as people of the past. They have wanted to put us within vitrines and glass cases. Uh, they have wanted to express our cultures, our vibrant cultures, in the form of mannequins and dioramas. And we would offer that the real excitement of our individual communities, which are vital, which are diverse, which embrace the full range of all the professions, can be a really contributing factor uh, to the common good of all people. 
and we would want to be included in those contemporary conversations and understood as contemporary people. You know, Adra, I think Joe Baker brings up a really good point that too often I think we talk about native stories as historical, you know, and ancient people who have disappeared. But that's a narrative that erases the richness of contemporary native stories. So we're going to come back to the Lenape Center and this idea of belonging and land in the final episode of our series. But we wanted to start building Brooklyn with another contemporary Native American story. This one also takes place in Brooklyn, in Gowanus, in fact, which is a neighborhood that gets its name from the Lenape language. But this Native story is about the Mohawk people, a different linguistic and cultural group from the Lenape, with communities in northern New York State and Canada. And in the middle of the 20th century, Brooklyn became the largest Mohawk settlement in the United States. Brooklyn slash New York was always like, I don't know, something something amazing, something far away, something, I don't want to say magical, but it was just, it was part of our family history. This is Regan Tarbaum. She's the granddaughter, niece, and at one time spouse of ironworkers who built parts of Brooklyn and New York. Mohawk ironworkers are skilled men and women who work in high steel and who, since the beginning of the construction boom up until today, make up 10% of all ironworkers in the city. Both of my grandfathers um, were ironworkers. You know, kind of relatively in in any large um, city or metropolis, you would find Mohawk men working. To paint a picture of what it's like to work in high steel, Imagine being on the highest floor of some of the tallest buildings in Manhattan. Now take away the walls and the windows and most of the floor. If you're an iron worker in high steel, that's your daily work environment. It's your job to connect the steel beams together before the rest of the building can go up around it. They're building into the sky and it's very dangerous work. It's work that takes them to big cities, especially during the construction boom of the 1950s and 60s, which is when Regan's grandparents came to New York. My grandmother had actually gone to New York to find work. So she ended up meeting my my, her husband, my grandfather later on after she'd been there for a few years. And so when they got together, you know, they they got married and they had children. And, you know, they brought their their families and they had, you know, they found places to live in Brooklyn, you know, like State Street, uh, Pacific Street, Atlantic Avenue, where it was, you know, certainly cheaper than trying to stay in in the city. Regan spoke to us from her home in Ganawage, a Mohawk territory of about 8,000 people located just south of Montreal. The Mohawk are one of six nations that belong to the Haudenosaunee, also known as the Iroquois Nation. Though she grew up in Canada, Regan heard a lot about Brooklyn from her family. She said they were always talking about New York and golden opportunities and everything. So she thought, she said she was so young that she actually thought that there, the buildings would be made of gold. This is Yvonne Harmon, Regan's aunt. 
The recording is from a documentary Regan made in 2008 about Mohawk iron workers in Brooklyn called Little Kaknawaga to Brooklyn and back. And the streets, and she said she got there and she was like in total shock. We used to go to the botanical garden and I would take Yvonne and Diane and of course there was water there and gar, you know, it's in Brooklyn. This is Lana Montour, also Regan's aunt, speaking on the same documentary. And uh, we used to uh, take our socks off and wash, wash them in the streams and on rocks. And then if, if there was any people looking around, they say, like, what are you doing? Or, you know, I say, oh, well, we're Indians. We're, you know, we're from Gunawaga, and uh, this is how we wash our clothes over there, <laughs> which wasn't far from the truth. From the 1930s up until the 1960s or so, a 10-square block area in downtown Brooklyn and North Gowanus was known as Little Kaknawaga, the anglicization of the Mohawk name Ganawage. In the 1950s, there were as many as 700 Mohawks living there. The Mohawk iron workers and their families made their mark on Brooklyn. They were a visible presence in the neighborhood, at schools and at churches, and also at a popular bar where many iron workers gathered called the Wigwam Bar. The singer is Lee Shenandoah. He's with a little group of his Indian friends and cousins at the Wigwam Club in downtown Brooklyn, the favorite Indian hangout where there are tomahawks. This is sound from a 1962 radio segment called A Wigwam in Brooklyn, now a part of WNYC archive collections. The Indians have a very special talent for the high steelwork and for walking the narrow steel ribs of skyscrapers and bridges. This unique skill helped to build the Hellgate Bridge, the Woolworth Bridge. There has been something of a bit of a mythology about Mohawks having some sort of innate native ability uh, to defy you know, the gravity involved. This is Christopher Lindsay Turner, a cultural research specialist and curator at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Almost every iron worker you'll meet upstate at any point in their career will tell you that that's that that's kind of bunk. <laughs> and that it has more to do with other things that you might not think of right off, but are very, very much part of Native community and life. And that's that they have traditions of generational support. They have networks of kinship. Um, they teach each other well how to deal with the uh, situations of working on high steel, but specifically just the, the realities and the, the, the ways of being safe. Ironworking is definitely a tradition that has been passed down from fathers to sons, but ironworking was not without its tragedies. It's been 15 years now since he died. I drove all the way to New York. They didn't want me to go. This is Lana Montour again, Regan Tarbell's aunt. She's talking about the day her husband, an iron worker, died on the job. The ho- I had called the hospital and they said, don't come. Well, you know what that means, so he's not going to make it. But he was still alive, you know. And I went anyway because I, I had to, I had to see, see him. And I did. And I went to, I went to, the, um, to the hospital, you know, so... Where, I know it was in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, uh, what do they call it, the Gowanus Parkway? Yeah. And um, they had the nets up, but they had taken them down to clean, to clean it, and they never put them back. He might have lived, you know, he might have been, he might have been okay, but it, everything underneath him, I think, collapsed. Everything was rotten. It was 100 feet. 
Unfortunately, the kind of shock and pain that Lana went through in losing her husband is something that Mohawk women have had to deal with since the men in their family started working in high steel. One of the earliest projects that relied heavily on Mohawk labor was the Quebec Bridge. In 1907, the bridge collapsed while iron workers were on it, killing 75 people, 35 of whom were from Ganawage. Whole families were destroyed with brothers, fathers, and uncles passing away all at once. It's hard to convey how devastating the disaster was in such a small community. The women had to suffer that loss, but they were so resilient and so strong. We're here today. This is Rita McCumber, an elder in Ganawage. Regan interviewed her for her documentary in 2007, just before the 100th anniversary of the Quebec Bridge disaster and right in the midst of the creation of a memorial in Kanawage for those who died in the bridge collapse. The reason why these women have been so anxious to have this done is to memorialize really what the effects of this tragedy was. And I think this monument can fulfill that. It's uniting us all and making us all realize, making our men realize exactly who we are as women that we have helped develop this community to be what it is today. What makes Regan's story unique and her documentary so interesting is that she tells these stories of the sacrifice and ingenuity of Mohawk iron workers from the women's perspective. With that lens, the Mohawk ironworking story became a Brooklyn story because this is where the families made their home. The different films or documentaries that we'd see growing up, it was always from the men's perspective, of course, because it's a very, um, you know, when you, when you think about it, it's a very exciting profession. You know, they're up high in the sky and, you know, it's a very dangerous job. And But my perspective uh, growing up I always heard about, you know, Brooklyn and New York from the women in my family, you know, and it was these stories of going to church, Sunday school. David Corey is the name of the minister. One day he realized he had so many people coming into his church and he heard them speaking their own language and he was quite thrilled, you know, to have them. That last voice is Doris Montour speaking to Regan for her documentary. She remembers going to Kyler Presbyterian Church with her family when she lived in Brooklyn. Reverend Corey, the pastor of that church, learned to speak Mohawk from his congregants and with the help of Mentor's mother and other Mohawk women, translated many church readings into the Mohawk language. Nancy Deer, another of Regan's aunts, remembers the community of women and children when she was growing up in Brooklyn. We lived at 485 Pacific Street. There was many, many families on my street, Atlantic Avenue, and State Street. That was the hub. We seen each other every day. We went to the same stores. We went to the same parks. We went to the same schools. Myrtle Bush remembers her grandmother's role in bringing the family to Brooklyn. Her husband was injured on the job in the 1920s. So in order to support the family, Myrtle's grandmother ran a boarding house for Mohawk iron workers in Brooklyn. On Myrtle Avenue which is maybe how I got the name Myrtle. <laughs> Myrtle's sister, Perla Hash, wasn't named after Brooklyn Street, but Brooklyn left its mark on her in another way. I made a phone call to the government for a reason, 
And they said, where are you calling from? You're from the States. You're either from New York or you're from... Br I don't know where. Everybody says Brooklyn. Why? Whatever reason. <laughs> I guess so many of us live there. So, and, and I said, no, I'm uh, living here in Kennewaki. And they, they started laughing. They got a kick out of it. I said, it's just the accent. I can't get rid of it. What I find really revealing about this whole story is that, you know, I've lived in Brooklyn for 15 years, but it was news to me that this community had a strong presence but if you lived in Gowanus in the 1960s, you would absolutely have known about the Mohawk community. They would have been a visible presence in the neighborhood. And sometimes that visibility was intentional, and sometimes it felt harmful. We asked Regan about that. I would go to my grandmother's house, and she had these wonderful old photo albums. And I'd see these photos of my aunt and my mother dressed up, you know, like, you, it's black and white, but you could tell that it's like a leather kind of fringe, you know, with a headband, with a little bit of beads or feathers. In her documentary, Regan met up with Doris Montour to look at some of those photos and programs from the pageants Mohawk families would put on at the Kyler Church. Here's Montour reading through a printed program with some of the names of the pageants they would perform. Indian Love Call. Uh, that's a scalp dance <laughs> and marriage ceremony. That was funny. And this was her husband. He was Italian, so he always played the part of a white man. <laughs> so, Did you find it maybe, I guess, funny that they were so interested in, in wanting to know who, who you were? And the I fact think were? so. I think a lot of people, you know, thought we were scalpers. And <laughs> we were very nice people. It, it was show business, as one of the elders ex explained it to me, you know. Um, because they would take part in different pageants um, in the community um, in Brooklyn and at the church, um, at the Kyler Church. So they would put on these pageants, I think because there was a lot of interest, you know, like, hey, there's a community of Indians living in our, our community. And I think they were more than happy to kind of put on these pageants, you know, to showcase, you know, um, and I, I don't want to say the culture, but it, it was show business. We came across an article in our library archives printed in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1945 of three Mohawk women working at a wartime factory in Brooklyn. They're wearing traditional beaded dresses and headbands for the photo, probably not the outfits they would normally wear to work. We'll put a link to that article on our show page with a note here that the descriptions in the article, which is broadly about Mohawk women from Ganawage working in wartime factories in Brooklyn for patriotism's sake, and to be closer to working Mohawk men, reads as pretty racist and relies very heavily on stereotypes of Native Americans. It's so interesting to think about the visibility of these families because they were regarded by other Brooklynites as outsiders and therefore a group to take note of. Though really, the Mohawk and other Haudenosaunee people have been in New York State longer than those who were treating them as visitors and outsiders. There are still Mohawk and Haudenosaunee ironworkers in New York City, but they live in other parts of Brooklyn now. And for the most part, their families aren't here. When Regan moved to Brooklyn in 2002 with her husband at the time, who was himself an ironworker, they didn't settle in North Gowanus, as Regan's parents and grandparents had, but in Bay Ridge. Little Cognawaga is, is definitely, um, you know, I think of the past. It's still a community, but a very different kind of community. 
even though there's no longer a significant concentration of Mohawk families in Gowanus anymore, their impact on New York City and on cities across the country cannot be overstated. Here's Chris Turner again. Ironwork was brought to them with that first bridge in 1886. So um, they saw the opportunity and they took it. And it's a very similar way in which we see that Native people become part of these economies and really make the most of it and put their stamp on it forever. As I say, seven generations later, ironwork is is a Mohawk tradition. And any family you speak to will talk to you about the pride that they feel in the generational continuity of the workers that have been in it. And in this sense that they have of their stamp that they put on the skyline of cities, they see the skyline of Brooklyn or Manhattan as being, that's a Mohawk view right there, they built it. So we get to look at a Mohawk view every day. From many parts of Brooklyn, you can see those tall buildings in Manhattan. It's part of what makes our city a global destination. So as iron workers continue to labor in our city, many of them make their return journey to Ganawage every Friday. Because of improved highways, it only takes six hours to drive back home instead of the 12-hour journey that it used to be. So many Mohawk men choose the grueling commute over bringing their families to live in Brooklyn. And that highway between two homes, it holds a powerful place in the memories of many Mohawks in Ganawage and in Brooklyn. Here's Ganawage elders Kahatane Hahorn and Doris Montour speaking in Regan's documentary. We used to have a song that we sang, and it would be just as we got over the border. And then we'd start singing that song as we drove in. The Ganawage song. Can you sing it? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You know that song. Which one? I don't know it. Well, it just goes like this. Oneniha de wondaro. Uh, Building Brooklyn is a mini-series from Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed Podcast. It's produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Merrill Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. This episode was a collaboration with Regan Tarbell, and it was written by Virginia Marshall. Our music composer is Billy Libby. You also heard music from Blue Dot Sessions. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me and Adjua Adusei. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website. Sound on this episode came from WNYC Archives Collection and the documentary Little Ganawage to Brooklyn and Back, directed by Regan Tarbell and produced by Mushkeg Media. You can check out a copy of the documentary from our library. Our beta listeners on this episode were Kat Savage and Lucretia Neal. Be sure to check back next week for another episode of Building Brooklyn. We're taking a cue from the Mohawk woman who worked in a wartime Brooklyn factory and telling the story of Brooklyn's Navy Yard during World War II, an important piece in the history of women at work. 
Did it feel strange to be doing work that was typically male? Oh, of course. Uh-huh. It was also romantic and exciting, uh-huh. you know, to wear pants. And uh-huh. The physical conditions were very rough, and I must say I wasn't crazy about the cold or the heat. Or the- that is sound from Brooklyn Navy Yard's oral history collection at our own Center for Brooklyn History. And the speaker, Lucille Culkin, a tack welder at the Navy Yard, was a big inspiration for the acclaimed writer Jennifer Egan's novel, Manhattan Beach. Egan helped to create and then use our oral history collection as research for her novel. What the oral histories initially provided was almost like an alternate memory bank. (laughs) A feeling, a sense of a time and a place and details and voices that would normally be my own but I couldn't use my own because it didn't reach back that far. So that was what they did first. And in a way that was sort of vague, like it just gave me a way to start. That's next time on Building Brooklyn. Brooklyn Public Library is one of the nation's largest public library systems. We have about 2.8 million physical materials. That's more than one per Brooklynite. We have a lot to offer, which is why BPL, along with the New York Public Library and Queens Public Library, are now fine-free. You can return everything to the library without worrying about fines for overdue materials. We're fine-free forever. Want to learn more about Brooklyn's literary history? You can take a walk with the library in your ears. We created BPL's first ever audio walking tour about literary sites in the borough. Starting in Fort Greene and ending in Bushwick, with 14 sites along the way, you'll hear about the places that famous writers once lived or locations they wrote about. The tour includes literary titans like Richard Wright, Paul Marshall, and Marianne Moore, as well as modern writers like Jason Reynolds, Jacqueline Woodson, and Jenny Zhang. You can enter the tour at any point and do as many or as few stops as you'd like. It's all self-guided and all outside. Just download Otocast and scroll through until you find the Literary Audio Walking Tour from Brooklyn Public Library. That's O-T-O-Cast, and you can find it in your app store.